0: Good morning. How you guys doing today? Great. All right. Um, how was Thanksgiving? Good, good. Um, I'm, I'm open to you responding back to me, by the way. So just shout out. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm not asking. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> um, he said my name. He kind of took my thunder. My name is Joel. I'm on staff here at the, uh, at the church at Calvary Fellowship. I'm in charge of missions and outreach. I'm also in charge of the youth. Uh, we have some exciting things planned for the youth starting in 2012. So if you have somebody 6th through 12th grade that you know in your life, or you are 6th through 12th grade, come get me later. Um, but before we get into that, I want to know, what are some of your Thanksgiving traditions? You can tell me. what What is something you like to eat? Maybe what's something you do? Anybody? Football. Sweet potatoes. Football. What, what else? Okay. What a rose-cone-gandules. All right. Um, that is that is not where I'm from. <laughs> uh, but no, that, that's actually great because um, for those of you who, who don't know much about me, don't know where I'm from, my my family is from Pennsylvania. They're, you know, farm-born, you know, raised in the barn, sort of, you know, working with the cows that's... Uh, um, I'm the first generation to like be born in a suburb and to you know get that whole lifestyle. But my, my family comes from a very traditional Midwest American, hardworking sort of background. Um, actually, you know, I, I, when I think of my family, I kind of think of this family. Um, does anybody recognize the, the Seavers from Growing Pains in the late 80s, early 90s? I'm not going to tell you which kid I am. Um, anyway, I'm definitely not the next door neighbor. Uh, but that's how I grew up, uh, and that's how Thanksgiving was reflected. That my, my, my way I grew up was reflected on a Thanksgiving table. Turkey, mashed potatoes, somebody said sweet potatoes, pumpkin pie, the cranberry sauce in the aluminum tin. All right, yes, all right. So when you take it out, it has like the little ridges on it still. That's, I always thought those were cut lines. Like when you lay it sideways, that's where you're supposed to cut. and you eat. Anyway, anyway. Um, that's what my Thanksgiving table looked like growing up. Uh, I, w- I my, was deceivers. I grew up in growing pains, uh, straight out of a Norman Rockwell painting. You might be able to say. My wife, on the other hand, anybody here know who my wife is? Yes. She, uh, her, her, you can take deceivers off, by the way. <laughs> she is. Uh, she does connection card every now. And then. Her name's Renata. She was born in Brazil and raised in Miami. So. For some of you who maybe were born somewhere else and raised here, or maybe your parents were born somewhere else and raised here, uh, you can kind of understand what your Thanksgiving might look like as opposed to my Thanksgiving. Uh, see, she was born in Brazil, raised in Miami. Uh, her style was a little less growing pains and a little more sun and samba. Um, when I met her, she gave me a warning. She said, have you seen this movie? <clears throat> my Big Fat Greek Wedding. How many of you have seen it in here, by the way? All right. So we're working with a good base of knowledge. She said, how many of you have seen this? She said to me, how have you seen this movie? I said, I have not seen this movie. She goes, this is my family. Before this relationship goes anywhere, you must know that that is my family. And I was like, all right, let's watch this movie. And then you, you start the movie and you see immigrant family, check. They have their own customs, check. They have their own uh, food, check. They have a huge family that's involved in everybody's business at all hours of the day. Check. Um, and just recently, my father-in-law purchased the house next door to his, just like the Greeks did in the movie. Um, I told them just the other day, the only thing that's missing now is you to paint the Brazilian flag on the garage door when it goes up and down. Um, I'm just, I don't think we're going to be moving there anytime soon, so... <laughs> Um, so as it happens, when you are in a relationship with someone, when you spend time with a significant other, you start to do holidays with them, right? Uh, I used to have Thanksgiving with my family every single year, um, but one th- one year it couldn't happen. I could, my, my family lives mostly in Tampa and Massachusetts now, and uh, it just it wasn't possible for me to go spend time with them that Thanksgiving. So Renata, of course, said, well, you can have Thanksgiving with my family. I said, of course. You know, we're, we're dating. This is what people in relationships do. So um, so I go to her house. If you've ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse, you know how the Brazilian people like to throw down. They know how to eat, and I'm okay with that. Um, my favorite things about Thanksgiving are football, food, and naps. So I'm, I'm like, in that, in that territory when it comes to eating. So I start grabbing all the food. The, the whole spread is there. I start grabbing the turkey, of course. The uh, the corn, the mashed potatoes. I'm making my plate. I'm like, I'm excited. I can't wait to eat this. Then I see like the Brazilian section, and I grab some rice and beans. I did not grow up with rice and beans. As foreign as that might sound to all of you in here, I didn't have rice and beans till I was like 12 or 13 or something. It's, it's yeah. Talk to me about that later. Um, so I get the rice and beans. Then they have this thing. If any Brazilians are in the house, they have this thing called farofa, which is like a dried yuca powder that you sprinkle on all your food, and I didn't understand that. kind of like feels like sand. They had bacalao, uh, codfish, like like a fish dish at Thanksgiving. It just doesn't have the same ring to me as the turkey, you know, and, the, and the John Madden gives the turkey award away. He doesn't give the fish award away, for those of you football fans in the crowd. But that's fine. I love food, so I'm eating all this different food. It's great. Now, just one thing is missing from my plate, so I start looking. I, I open up the stove... It's not there. I look on the counter. Not there. Start the little bead of sweat rolls down my forehead. I'm like, I'm worried. I need, I need this thing. Um, so I, I looked in the microwave. I looked on the table. Uh, at this point, it's altogether panic. And you know how when you lose your keys, you go back and you look for the same thing, like two, three, five times? I did that, um, and it wasn't there. So I go to my mother-in-law, and I say, her name's Isabel. I say, Isabel. Delicious meal, thank you. I I can't wait to eat. I just have one question. She goes, yeah, what's the question? Where is the gravy? Yes, right? And and she looks at me like this. She goes, what? And I'm like, well, okay, she was was born and raised in Brazil. I've learned a little bit of Portuguese. So I say, sogrinha, onde está o gravy? (laughs) Which means... My little wonderful mother-in-law, where is the gravy? And she goes, the what? And I start to describe, you know, the delicious brown sauce that you put on top of your Thanksgiving meal, the thing that makes your Thanksgiving meal complete, the thing that you can't live without, the thing that you want to inject into your veins and have the gravy stream go directly to your heart. Where's that? And she looks at me and she goes, I don't know what you're talking about, and it's not here. And I said, Isabel, there's this thing called the gravy train, and I want to get on it. And she goes, that train is not stopping at the Brazilian embassy today. You're going to have to be without your gravy. So I was crushed. My meal wasn't complete without the gravy. And, and, and gravy, to me, maybe not to you, is an essential element of the Thanksgiving experience. And just like in life, there are essential things that... Make the experience greater, that that some things are just not the same without that one key ingredient, that one key element. I thought about a couple of things. Um, a movie without popcorn. And then, of course, that little oil butter that you put on top of it. Um, baseball without the seventh inning stretch. That's my favorite part. You stand up, you know, one, two, three strikes. I love that. South Beach without Lincoln Road. Imagine if it's like a you can't comprehend it. Uh, for those of you parents in the crowd, a teenage boy without body odor. Like, there's just some things, one thing goes with another, and it's not the same without it. Um, you see, and we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah and the Blueprint series, and we've seen the story of, a, uh, of the story of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, exiled to a foreign land. They were missing their homeland. They didn't have access to their holy city of Jerusalem. They didn't have access to their temple, which is where they went to worship God. They had their language, they had their history, they had their identity, but they were missing out on the worship of their Lord. They lacked a key, essential ingredient to their relationship with God. Because now, just like then, worship is an essential part in the life of a child of God. If you call yourself a Christian, me, you, were here at church today, most of us would consider ourselves Christians. If you say you love God, then worship must be a part of who you are. And today we're going to be looking in the book of Ezra. If you want to start going there in your Bibles, the book of Ezra, chapter 3. Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah. And it tells of the same story that we learned about in Nehemiah, but from a different perspective. Ezra was the priest and the scribe of the people of Israel, while Nehemiah was the governor. Nehemiah was in charge of rebuilding the wall. And Ezra recounts the story of the building of the temple in Jerusalem. So if you can open your Bibles, Ezra, chapter 3. Um, we're going to see the rebuilding, the laying the foundation of the temple. And the temple in those days was everything. The temple was the place where the people were able to meet their God. The temple was the place where they go to make their sacrifices. The temple was the center of worship in these people's lives. And for so many years, they were without that temple because they were exiled into a foreign land. So I'm going to start in verse 10 of chapter 3. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests Stood with their apparel, in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So here we see in this this section of Ezra that the foundation of the temple was laid. And remember, the temple was central, was important their relationship to God after years of exile could finally continue. And the people responded. When they saw the foundation laid, the people responded. They responded with music, with shouts of joy. Some men were overwhelmed because they remember the first temple when they were little, and they began to cry. People saw God do something, and as it says in the book of Ezra, the people responded to what God was doing. Which leads me to ask a question. Why did the people respond that way? You know, it might sound normal. You see something good. You see something you like. You, you know, respond positively. But have you ever thought about what's behind those responses? Why do we cheer when our favorite team wins? For you mothers in the crowd, did you have tears in your eyes when you held your baby for the first time? Why did you respond that way? And it's because, and that's actually point one today, we were created to worship. Point one, you can go ahead and write it in. We were created to worship. Now, like I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the church. I've heard this statement thrown around my whole life. I've seen it on Christian T-shirts, Christian bumper stickers, Christian books. have this phrase, created to worship. And I've Okay, great. I'm created to worship. But what does that mean? Let me try and illustrate it for you. Um, let's, let's take a look at the following pictures. You can tell me, like I said, it's all right to respond back and forth. You can tell me if what you see on the screen is worship or not. How about this first picture? Yeah, this looks pretty much like we have a stage very similar. Some people, you know, singing and there's a man with a guitar. The, the lyrics say, name above all names, you're worthy of all praise. They're obviously singing to God. Okay, this, this could be a picture of worship. How about this next picture? There's a man in a church pew, he's praying. What do you think? Okay, um, next picture. Baptism. We did this last week. It was awesome. What an honor it was for me and Ivan to be in the baptismal Helping people take their next step with God. How about this next pick? Oh, wait. Is, is this worship? I hear some yeses. Anybody, any bold no's out there? All right. How about this next pick? Oh, look. Freshly, like, clean. The, the car is, wow, brand new car. Thank you. Happy birthday. I love my my new car. Is this worship? All right. How about the next pick? Some of you, some of you laugh because you are guilty. You are, I've caught you. There is, actually, I see you right now. Um, Black Friday sales. Is this, you know, missing Thanksgiving meal with your family in a, in a tent outside of Best Buy? Is this worship? Yes. In all these pictures, we're seeing worship. We're seeing an expression of worship. Closed eyes. Check. Raise hands. Yes. Excitement. Joy. Shouting. The question that I want to ask you today, though, is to whom is the worship being directed? See, there's a misconception that worship is the the four songs that we did at the beginning of service today, or when the band does a special event on the weekend sometime, or or when Hillsong comes to town. They were here in August. They're coming back in February. Everybody's so excited. Yeah, right? Um, These may or may not be worship. Worship, first and foremost, is a verb. Worship is more than an activity, Worship is not something that you attend. It's not something you observe. Worship is something that you do. Worship is a response to what we value most. And as hard as it is to admit, sometimes we get maybe more excited about waxing our car on a Saturday than about bringing our family to church on a Sunday. Or some of us get so excited about waking up at 3.30 in the morning to go get the Black Friday sales, but we can show up 20, 30 minutes late to church if we even come at all. Um, Our actions reveal what we value. See, in Ezra, we see the Israelites responding to what they value, the temple, by singing, by shouting, by weeping. They didn't have a temple for so many years, and they lacked the ability to gather together as a community to worship their God. And when the time came to see the temple be built again, they could not contain the response that had swelled up inside of them for so many years. The verse that we read earlier does not say... A few of the Israelites looked on with curiosity as the foundation was laid, and then they went on their way because they were too busy with other things. That's not what Ezra says. It says they responded with a great shout, with a loud voice. We have a verse in the book of Revelation. We see a picture of worship. The angels and other heavenly creatures are around the throne of God, and they say this, Revelation 4, 11, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will... They were created and have their being. God, the Creator of all things, created us by His will. We have life. We are we here because it's God's will that we are here. To Him alone are due all of our praises, all of our affections, all of our all of our our, our praise is 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 due to Him because He alone is worthy. He created us and He is worthy of praise. Why? Because the psalmist says all. Creation declares the glory of God. And if you're here with me today, if you're hearing my words, you are a part of the creation of God, and we are to declare His glory. It says in Romans 1136, for Him, for of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Worship is essential to our lives as Christians, and it's essential because worship is a part of who we are. Worship is what we do anyways. Life, however, only begins to make sense when you take your eyes off the created things and focus them on the creator. Like Jesus himself said, if these people don't cry out my name, the rocks will cry out instead. Think about it. You're walking down the path, you you kick a pebble, you kick a stone. If you're not worshiping God, Jesus says that that rock is going to take your job because all of creation declares the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be demoted by a stone. I want to do my job. See, then that's all fine and good. And you might be thinking, okay, great, Joel. Worship happens. I get it. I worship. That's just a part of who I am. Uh, I need to be a part of it. Great. I get it. But sometimes, Joel, I don't feel like it. Sometimes the band hit, hits a wrong note, and that just takes me out of it. I just, I just want to leave. I, 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 ugh, it sounded terrible. Or, Joel, you don't understand. You, yeah, great. You're here on Sunday. But guess what? Monday morning at 9 a.m., I have to be at my desk And I have 27 projects that need to be completed by the end of the week, and I don't know how I'm going to finish those things. Let me suggest something to you. If you change your perspective, your worship will change. That's point two. Ultimately, worship is a product of your perspective. What you focus, your energies on what you focus, your time on, you're going to end up worshiping. See, and I had a big shift in perspective a couple years ago. Um... My dad, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, my dad raised me uh, with just a couple rules in the house. Rule number one: no smoking. No problem. I can take care of that. Rule number two: I hate hockey. My dad would always, you know, be flipping through the channels, and he would come up uh, uh, upon a hockey game, and he would go, "I hate hockey. Terrible sport. I don't get it." All right. So we didn't watch hockey in my house. Then third, he would tell me, "Joel, I don't understand soccer." I said, "All right." then I don't either, you know, because what's a kid do? A kid wants to be like his dad. I liked baseball. I liked American football. My dad wrestled in high school. I did track in high school, but we never talked about hockey, never talked about soccer. So imagine, if you will, me marrying into a Brazilian family. Um, if you don't know, Brazilians have won the World Cup more than any other country in the planet uh, five times, so it's going to take a while for the other countries to catch up. So here I am. Growing up with this, what is soccer? And let's rewind to a year ago at my in-laws' house. I'm watching the World Cup final, Spain versus Holland. Did anybody watch the game, Spain versus Holland? Well, Okay, great. Um, I was on the edge of my seat. I'm sitting there like, I'm biting my nails. It was, an, it was a tense game. Um, it was 0-0 for most of the game. And then finally, within the last couple minutes of the game, Spain puts the goal in to go ahead 1-0 to the blow, the final whistle blows and I start to cry. What a pansy, right? Like, what am I doing? I didn't grow up with soccer. I you can ask my friends here. I'm not very adept with my with my soccer feet. Those of you who have played with me, in fact, if if you've been around long enough, you remember me walking around in a in a boot uh, and crutches because I dislocated my ankle playing soccer. Um, that's another story for another day. But I had a shift in perspective. I went from not knowing what soccer was to crying over the victory of Spain. What, where does that make sense? It makes sense when the shift happened. See, in 2003, I moved to Spain for two years as a missionary. Some of you know that, some of you don't. And though that whole process probably led to where I am today. But I moved to Spain to become a missionary. And, and when you become a missionary, when you change your perspective, when you look at a group of people instead of just others and see them as children of God and see your life as a, as a role, as a tool uh, for God to change their lives, you start to identify and you start to love these people that you didn't know anything about. I knew nothing about Spain. Uh, unlike most of you in here, I did not grow up speaking Spanish in my household. I had to learn the language at high school and then... You know, when I was living in Spain, I, I was able to really cement uh, the language there. Um, but my identification with that country and understanding their history, understanding where they came from, understanding the struggles that that place has gone through with dictatorships and, 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 and different different things, I identified with a country that was not my own. And I cried at a stupid soccer game. But that's because I had a shift in my perspective. My worship, if you want to call it that, was me responding to how much I care about Spain and how much I love soccer now because of that shift that happened to me. I had that shift that changed my perspective. Now, how does that apply to us today? Church, if your image of God is small, if your image of God is limited, if you belittle the miracles that God has done in your life, if you think the answer to your problems will arrive by getting that raise at work, if you think the answer to your problems are finding Mr. or Mrs. Right. If the answer to your problem is going on that shopping spree or getting that little red Corvette, then your worship is going to reflect that. But because we worship what we most value, whether we like it or not, we need to make sure what we're worshiping is worth it. You know that Jesus dealt with the same issue. Um, We're going to be opening up uh, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10. We see in the book of Luke that a pair of sisters have invited Jesus and his disciples over to their house. They want to serve them they want to, they want to make a meal for them they want to just hang out you know we have some of you are really great hosts you 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 invite people over, you prepare some food for them you give them something to drink, and then you just hang out that's what people do um so this this pair of sisters, Mary and Martha, they invited Jesus and the disciples over Martha goes one direction and starts preparing everything. Mary goes another direction and just sits at Jesus' feet while Jesus is talking and teaching. And then she's just absorbing all this, all this information that Jesus is, is sharing. And then let's, let's pick it up in verse, uh, verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at, at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him, Jesus, and said, "'Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone?' Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. See, in this case, Martha was too worried about getting the drinks ready, getting the food ready, instead of just simply being in the presence of her Savior. Jesus says that one thing is needed, And that one thing was to be at the feet of Jesus. Serving others is great. I'm all about serving others. We have lots of opportunities here to serve others. But if your service is rooted in worry, and if you're troubled while you're serving others, you're missing the fact that Jesus just wants you at his feet. Does that sound like anybody here today? Are some of you busy bees? Are some of you so worried about doing the right thing that you're completely missing on being in the presence of your Savior? Martha needed a change in her perspective in order for her worship to line up correctly. Martha thought she was serving God, but she was really more preoccupied with her own agenda and not with what Jesus wanted. With that in mind, I would like to suggest three specific ways we can worship God today. Three specific ways that we can and should worship God. The first and maybe the most obvious thing is to sing. It's what we do every single gathering, every single time Christians get together it seems like we like to sing. And you know maybe some of you see me up here every every Sunday or most Sundays and I have a microphone and I get to sing or whatever. Um but let me be the first to admit. You might think, "Well, Joel, you're different. You're on the stage every." No, let me let me be the first to admit. Waking up on a Sunday morning and coming to a gathering with a couple hundred people and 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 standing and singing is not the most normal or common activity that happens throughout your week. Think about Monday through Friday at work. When do you gather together with your coworkers and say, Huh, ah, before we start the day, let's all sing. That doesn't happen. I mean, maybe when, you know, when I was a kid for a couple of years in elementary school, we would sing the National Anthem or something, or some, you know, God Bless America, something like that. But as you grow up, as you become an adult, when do you get together and sing? You don't. That's not a common thing that we do in America in 2011. But let me tell you something, throughout history people have gotten together and sang in cultures that that haven't been uh, touched by by you know modern amenities electricity things like that cultures they they'll get around the fire still to this day in 2011 in jungles you know and in all different parts of the world and they sing for hours on end people teach lessons through song people express sorrow through song people express joy through song singing is what humans do um and some of you, you're like, yeah, that's great. I sing in the shower, maybe. I sing in the car, maybe. But let me suggest that that, that that songs have a way of opening up our hearts. Songs have a way of saying things that pure, simple words do not have the ability to sing. Now, some of you are probably like, Joel, where are you going with this? I'm kind of like, I'm kind of spacing out a little bit. All right, let's take an example. I'm the DJ of this club, Club Calvary Fellowship. All right? And, and I want to get you guys up. I want to get you guys excited. I want to get you guys partying. So I come up to you and I say, no, no, I don't need music. I have the ability with my pure and simple words to get you excited. I don't know. Don't play the music, please. Party rock is in the house tonight. Everybody just have a good time. And we're going to make you lose your mind. We just want to see you shake that. Every day I'm shuffling, shuffling, shuffling right? That makes, when you, when you hear me say that with my words, that's like the number one song on the radio right now. It's a song of the summer. When you hear me say those words, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Because it is. Those words make no sense. And if you really knew what you were singing when you're there dancing along with it, you would probably be very embarrassed that you were listening to that in the first place. But when you hear the words... You go, oh. but when you put music behind it, when you get a multi-million dollar producer to make the track and to put the music, you have the big speakers, you have, the, you have that thing going on, you get excited. You do want to party rock. I don't even know what party rock is, but I want to get up and do it, right? Because that's the ability that songs have. That's the ability that singing has. Now, to move away from the club and go to the other side of the dial, let's look in Luke 2. We see angels singing as they proclaim the birth of Jesus. Singing is a part of who God is. Singing is a part of what happens in heaven. Singing is a part of creation. The angels sang. They said, Suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. And besides that, let's look at how many verses in the Bible instruct us to sing. Psalm 150, one of my favorites. And the Psalms are all... They were all originally sung. There's instructions in the Psalms to the leader of the music on how to play the music, on how to do the, the, the timbre of the song. It says in 150, Praise the Lord. Let all things praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. We usually have that pretty good on Sunday morning. Um, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now tell me, do you have breath this morning? Yes. Then use it to praise the Lord. Serving is another way we can worship God. We talked a little bit about serving earlier, but serving brings glory to God by showing others that they matter to you and that they matter to God. In fact, Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter four, we see Jesus put service and worship together in one Bible verse. He says service is worship, and worship is service. Um, Jesus is, 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 this is the story of Jesus in the desert. He has Satan tempting him saying, you, "You need to do this? What about this? What about this?" And Jesus comes back every single time and says, no, no, no. And he says no to the temptations of the devil. In in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus says to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus equates service with worship. Which begs the question, okay, well, how can I serve? Who can I serve? Jesus also answers that. Sidebar, if you have any questions, Find what Jesus is saying and Jesus will always, always, always point you in the right direction. Matthew 25, chapter uh, verse 37, Jesus answers, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. See, when we serve others in need, when we see in need and we fill it, we are serving others, yes, but ultimately, we're serving God. We're worshiping God. We worship God when we serve. And if you're looking for ways to serve, we have so many opportunities here every Sunday at Calvary Fellowship to serve both here at the church. We also do things in the community. There's always something on the back of your connection card. I can't stress how important that is to always take a look at the backside of your connection card and find ways to worship God through service Um, and begin to worship through that. Ultimately, guys, as we draw to a close, the band is going to come out in a little bit, and we're going to have a chance to practice some of this this singing that we're talking about. We're going to have a chance to practice this worship of God Singing is awesome. I love doing it. It's essential. Serving is great. Serving is worship, like we talked about. They are essential pieces to worship. Just like we talked about the gravy being on top of everything on your Thanksgiving plate. If you are not worshiping, you're missing out on on an essential element of your Christian experience. But none of this, we can do all the right things. None of this will make sense. Without surrender, and that's actually point three, or letter C, excuse me. We can run as much as we want. You can try to do as much as you want on your own. You can do all the right things. You can say all the right things. You can hang out and be around all the right people. But until you fully and completely hand over your entire life to Jesus for his use and his kingdom, life will be incomplete and your worship will will be limited. Look at Jonah. And Jonah, one of the old, um, old Test- the old Testament prophets. Jonah chapter 1. God called him to do one thing, and he ran away to do another. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So because he ran away from the call of God he ended up in the belly of the whale. It wasn't until he hit rock bottom, it wasn't until he was stuck inside the belly of the whale at the bottom of the ocean that he realized what he finally had to do. He had to give up. He had to stop what he was trying to do. He had to take his own ideas, his own desires, his own will, and put them to the side. And he had to surrender from God. And surrender to God. So he prayed to God from inside that whale in chapter 2, verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. See, he says such an important word there. He says, I will sacrifice. Jonah pauses his life and says, my life has led me to the bottom of the ocean and I need to find my way back to you. I need to surrender what I want. I need to surrender me following my own desires and I need to... Give it all back to you. Salvation. Ultimately, Jonah is saying here, salvation, all things come from God. There's on, the only way we can be taken out of the belly of the whale is when we give up our own plans and we, give our, and we trust God for our salvation. So then what happens in Jonah chapter 3? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time after he'd been spit back up on the beach, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it. Preach the message That I tell you. This is the exact same instruction in Jonah chapter 1. Verse 3, it says, So Jonah arose, and he didn't run away this time. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. God calls, and finally, Jonah listens. Jonah does what God calls him to do, and guess what? An entire city is saved. Guys, my question today is, 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 what is God calling you to do? Are you running away? Are you trying to get swallowed by the whale? Or... Is God going to use you once you surrender to Him to change an entire city? We must be like Jonah. We have to give up our own selfish pursuits and ask God to lead us. This is true worship. This is the complete package. This is the complete Christian life. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It doesn't say, Seek sometimes God and then seek sometimes whatever the heck you want to do. Seek sometimes God and then seek that, that you know the, the, those girls at your job. Seek sometimes God and then go seek how I can cheat on my taxes to get more return this year. It's, it, God doesn't say that. It's seek first. And there's no number before one. It's one and then everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these things shall be added unto you. Nothing can come before first. In order to follow Jesus, we must surrender our lives just like Jesus surrendered his. Jesus committed the ultimate act of worship when he gave up his own way and he went to the cross. Do you think that Jesus wanted to do that? Part of me says yes, but the Bible also says that Jesus looked for another way. Jesus, in prayer, prayed to God and he said, God, if there's any other way that this this cup can be taken from me, that this act of going to the cross can be taken from me, I want that way. But Jesus also follows that up by saying, but ultimately God, I want what your will is for my life. Jesus is saying, if there's any other way, take it from me. But if there's no other way, I want to do what you would have me to do. And we're here today because of that act of worship, because of that act of obedience, because of that act of surrender. Jesus gave his life up so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be here today. Uh, We have a chance today to be a part of this redemption. We have a chance to experience this wholeness in Christ. We have a chance to experience his salvation, true love, abundant life, all these things that the Bible talks about. We have that chance to experience it today, but it cannot happen until you surrender and to turn everything that you think is yours over to God. Only then will you truly understand what worship is. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a chance to worship. We're going to take all these things that we've learned this morning and we're going to be able to put it into practice. It's not just about singing a song. It's not about hitting the right notes. It's not about, you know, singing at the right volume so the person next to you doesn't hear you. It's not about that. It's about you surrendering And putting aside your own desires and telling God as the creator of the universe that he is worthy, that he is worth it, that he is deserving of all glory, honor, power, and praise. So I'm going to give you this opportunity as we worship. If you need to stay in your seat, by all means do that. If you need to pray, if you need to say a couple things to God that you've been holding on to, that you don't want to let go of, take this time now. If God is calling you to sing like you've never sung before, if you feel something welling up in your heart that you just haven't been able to let out of your mouth, then I encourage you to do that as well. From an insider perspective, there's nothing more encouraging than being able to sing, not from the stage to the crowd, but to be able to sing in unison with everybody in my church family. That's what the people of Israel did. They rose a shout so loud and some people were crying. That's okay. That happens. When God does things in your life, sometimes your reaction will be to let it tear, And that's okay. No one's going to say you're right or wrong for doing that. If you need to pray, if you need to confess a sin, if you need to find someone and ask them to pray for you, that's also okay. This is a time to worship. This is a time to allow God to speak to you, but also to allow you to speak back to Him. But remember, it makes no sense without surrender. If you don't know Jesus today, if you're here for the first time, if someone dragged you here because you're home for the holidays or whatever and someone said, hey, let's go to church today, then I encourage you to find out what it means to surrender, to find out what it means to leave aside everything you've been trying to do because ultimately we're going to end up at the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a whale. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. You've been buried you've tried to do things on your own and you just thing after thing has been buried on top of you and you can't get out on your own. You need to pray from the bottom of the ocean. You need to ask God to take those things away from you and to bring you back to the surface where you can breathe again. And that surrender only happens. That, or that worship only happens when you surrender to God. God, we stand in awe of you, Father. as a part of your creation God we are just humbled that you even care for us we're humbled and we are in awe that you want to be in relationship with us Father for all the times that we've tried to run away all the times we've tried to do our own thing all the times that we've been stuck in the bottom of the the ocean in the belly of the whale you still call out to us come back to me I have things I want to do I love you and I want to be with you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, that we can even worship you. We thank you for Jesus that, who made it possible that he did destroy the temple in three days and he rebuilt it, God, in himself. God, we stand in awe of you today. We worship you with our service. We worship you with our lips. We worship you with our surrender by turning over our hearts to you everything that we're holding on to God we give it all away and we turn it back to you God we just ask you to to take control of our lives Father to, to show us where we need to be and to show us continually how much that you love us we love you and we thank you To your name we pray this morning Amen